welcome to Space Chats. This week I'm with Marina Cusi, who is bringing the S is Silent to the Space on the 11th to the 13th of July, with the live stream on the 13th of July. Hello, welcome to the space. How are you? Thanks so much for having me here. I'm fine, I'm fine. It's hot weather in London, it's absolutely lovely. It's, It's very hot, it's also quite hot in this office and we've closed the doors for heat <laughs> not heat reasons for for sound reasons but it's not a good idea in this heat and next door if you hear shouting that is the rehearsals for Lady Inga which is coming up very soon. So we were having a bit of a chat before we started about what you would define yourself as within theatre and you like the label of theatre maker. Can you tell me a bit more about how you would define yourself as a theatre maker and also what the label theatre maker means to you? Yeah, so I define myself as a theatre maker because of the broadness of the word. I am primarily a multidisciplinary artist, so I see art in general as a conductor for whatever story I'm trying to tell. So I try to not put labels onto like what my pieces are, what am I at any given moment, because technically I'm a performer, I'm a dancer, I also work with film, with projections. I do many things. I also produce, which brings another kind of dimension into my work. I direct, I write, and I also do live performances in art galleries, for example. So, you know, um, how do you call it? Like performance art, really. So I prefer not to define myself too much. So theatre maker, I think, is the label I like to go for. Perfect. So the S is silent. Judging partly by what I know about the show and the little bit I've seen of it and judging by what you've just said, is it fair to say that's kind of an amalgamation of all those things? You're bringing all those things to the table? Yes. So it's an amalgamation of styles, an amalgamation of stories and an amalgamation of like methods. So we have obviously performance because in the end it's a theatre play. This is the box they goes on to but it also has flamenco dance which informs a lot like the language of the piece and then we have a video we have the subtitles which in itself it's another like medium to communicate the story and i think it has a lot of visual poetry so it really goes through two realms like the reality and then a more poetic, enhanced version of reality, which is spoken word. So yeah, I would say, if you come to see the show, you will really see what our company is about, which is about like multicultural practices, multidisciplinarity. We all have like a very broad scope of skills and talents, and each person does other things apart from being a theatre performer. So I think it it really encapsulates how we make not only theatre, but how, like, the kind of storytellers that we are. So the show itself, the script, when it came to us, we were all completely captivated by it. But also, to our shame, it was about something which we all collectively at The Space did not know a huge amount about. So just for listeners, this is um, a piece about women under Franco in Spain. Would you like to tell us a bit more about what the piece is looking at and why you wanted to tell those stories? So the piece is about womanhood during fascism in Spain. As you mentioned, Franco, the dictator that we had in Spain back in the 20th century, basically 
Spain went through a civil war for three years from uh, 1936 to 39, which was previous to World War Two, and people don't realize this. Uh, because Spain has been kind of forgot by the rest of Europe, but we were kind of like the playground where every other country tested their weapons before they went on to World War Two. So we had a very left-wing government, we had a republic, we had a very good constitution, the rights for women were one of the most advanced in Europe, our education was producing amazing intellectuals, a uh, lot of queer movements, and suddenly everything was overthrown by a coup by the military general Francisco Franco was like leading and everyone thought that he wouldn't win because we were so left-wing but he gained a lot of power and eventually he won the civil war and not only that but he continued in power until 1975 going unchallenged well of course people tried to challenge but like he completely won any kind of uprising so there was 40 years that spain was in a fascist dictatorship that was like very linked to catholicism and people don't realize that i myself i'm 26 my grandparents were all born and brought up in a dictatorship. My parents were born and brought up in a dictatorship. So there was this point in my life where I was like, oh my God, I just realized this. And I was like, how do I not know anything about this moment in history that I'm sure has impacted me so much, especially as a woman, when we're talking about like Catholicism and the repression of women that comes with fascism. And I realized the generational trauma and how my family actually has never spoke about it. And I started having conversations with other Spanish people and they're like, yeah, yeah. Seems like history was erased to a point. And when I started researching, I realized that not only was erased, there was no women. Like I, I wanted to know how it was for women to live and express themselves under fascism. And either the authors I found uh, wrote under pseudonyms because they were not allowed to publish, or there were women who were on Franco's side and were allowed to publish, but of course, like very patriarchal, very like patriarchal ideas, or they were on exile, which on itself is another kind of like another world. Uh, but I couldn't find women who openly like wrote and produced art and like communicated in Spain during that time. So yeah, I started talking to my family and realizing how much there was there. I was like, oh my God, this story has to be told because women were raised and right now in Europe we have these right-wing parties just getting more and more bold and everyone has kind of forgot where we come from on our recent past. Like when we think about fascism in Europe, everyone thinks Hitler, but Hitler was ultimately defeated and like all these horrors that happen are being questioned by Holocaust deniers, by the way, like, what, what's going on there? I don't know. But there was more than that. There was Mussolini in, in Italy, there was Franco in Spain, like, there were so many regimes that took, like, almost half of Europe. And I think it's very important for us to look at this past to see how the threat takes over very quickly, almost overnight, and what can happen if we do not stop it and we don't give it the importance that it has. So I think it's a very important piece to see now, especially after the elections in Spain showed that like, 
a lot of the population are voting not only right-wing but extreme right-wing fascist parties. How would you, I mean this is a very big question to ask, as well as there being this element of the forgotten or the not necessarily forgotten but the put to one side past of fascism, how women were treated, how much is there very present today in Spain of those attitudes, the lingering? Yeah. And, you know, the, there's the voting and, and people coming out saying, I support for, for yeah. right or right, but in terms of day-to-day interactions or opinions? Yeah, so I want to start this conversation by saying I'm very proud where I come from. Well, if, if we'll get into details, I'm... I'm Catalan, I'm from Catalonia, I speak Catalan, um, but of course, like, I live in Spain, I interact with Spanish people all the time, and I think Spain is, is a great country, but it's very flawed, and I think we don't challenge it enough, or the people who challenge it are viewed as, like, very negatively. And what really concerns me is that, especially here in England, Spain is seen as this place of sun and fun and, like, clubs and booze and, again, sun and beach. And the romanticization of, of Spain, it's really troubling because if you live there, like, the day-to-day sexism is so prevalent. Like, the amount of times I had to challenge men on how I was treated blatant sexism, the way you've spoken to, the catcalling. I I did this piece that I was doing research for and I started counting how many times I got catcalled on my uh, walk to work, which is 15 minutes. It was like an average of five times, which is very scary, which here in, in the UK it also happens, but I've never seen the volume that happens in Spain. And things like even left-wing people, like I would say my family, is there's conceptions of women like behaving like a lady and a woman shouldn't say things like this and women should like not challenge things and women should be prim and proper. I remember when I started being an artist, well my parents were not very amused by that, but especially because the kind of theatre I do challenges patriarchy and challenges like the status quo and everything and I did pieces that went against like very big institutions and they're like oh Marina we don't really believe you should be doing that like what if you're kicked out of university what if that has repercussions which I understand this comes from fear like they are parents of course they think like that but there was this aspect of like if I were a man I don't think you would be saying that because it comes more from the way that women are not the challenges, women are to be like soft-spoken and these like whole gender roles. And of course like the feminicides in Spain and South America which obviously it's another continent but it's very linked to Catholicism and like we colonize South America, I'm so sorry. Um, so South America has the same problem where there's just so much violence against women Sorry, this is very upsetting, but I don't, I don't know, trigger warning, feminicides, like, I'm so tired of flying back at home and watching the news and there's, like, minors being, like, sexually abused by teenagers because it's so embedded into education and into, like, the general kind of thinking 
and going back home and hearing about so many kidnappings of women and myself like being in public spaces and knowing I have to behave in a way that will not get me attacked, especially the way I dress. I find a lot of liberation and a lot of freedom here in the UK because I'm very campy, I'm, I'm very queer, I like very feminine. And when I pack my suitcases to go to Spain, I kind of forget how it is to dress like that in public spaces. And I remember the first time I went for holidays when I was in uni here and I went to Spain, going to a bar and just the looks and the comments that complete strangers were throwing at me I went home crying and I changed myself and as I said like I'm a very I'm a huge activist and like I couldn't believe I had to do that but it was for my own safety just so embedded on the day to day so normalized so not challenged and I think it's really changing especially we're having like a me too movement that stems out of abuses from men to women in drama schools which I could tell you a lot about. My next piece is all about that. But yeah, we're having a Me Too resurgence and people are really up in arms in it. Um, and for doing, for making the Aziz Island, I went to film International Women's Day in Barcelona, which is uh, the video that, that opens the piece. And the feeling of International Women's Day there has nothing to do with here. I remember like on Instagram, everyone on the UK was like, oh, happy Women's Day, everyone. Let's, you know, how beautiful it is to be a woman. And I remember I posted something along those lines and people in Spain were like, Marina, there's nothing to celebrate. They're killing us. Like, this is a day to fight. And it, it really struck me, like, how, yeah, how different it is. Because now I've been here for five years and I went back and just that people were flooding the streets in Barcelona. I remember wa walking against like the flow of people for 45 minutes and all Barcelona was flooded with people just chanting but with this rage of absolute like impotence and like please listen to us this is our livelihoods. So sorry to interrupt in, in the middle of your thing. I could talk um, forever about this. <laughs> no no it's good. It's a huge topic to encapsulate in one show. I mean, my, my first thought is that I can see why this lends itself so well to someone who approaches something in such a multifaceted, multidisciplinary way. Because how do you express this? How do you approach this? This sounds like a universal experience rather than simply one story to tell. And also trying to communicate especially in this country, the urgency and the violence as opposed to the... It's an issue that we're up against. I think there's a, a slight tendency perhaps in, in a lot of British theatre to kind of put things neatly into an, an envelope of this is an issue and we'll explore it nice and quietly and kindly and in a very calm way. How do you find putting rage on stage? So... I'm a very ragey person. I am the definition of an angry feminist. And it serves me very well to cook the ideas in my head for like an entire year <laughs> before putting it on paper because I think theatre is about nuance. And I think there's so many facets to explore, so not everything can be rage. Rage is very powerful, but it has to be used with a purpose. So I would say in the Aziz Island there's rage, but there's so many other colours. I found in most of my work when I'm very angry, 
but works the best is humor and I struggle with it so much so <laughs> not with humor but <laughs> like you know finding the humor on things that affect me so deeply and are so urgent as you said that's why I surround myself with people who might not be that close into the issue I work a lot with the movement director and my assistant director Maria and Nefeli they are both from Cyprus and I think they really helped me bring a breeze of fresh air and perspective and I said guys I want to bring humor to the piece and I know I want to put like a song that's very happy but there's so much underlying I'm sorry about the language but like fucked up things that I want to see oozing out of this and they really helped me to come up with ideas and like new ways of looking at it because yeah I feel like as a performer as a theatre maker it's very different and you always have to contemplate that the emotion that you put on the stage is not necessarily the same one that the audience will be feeling so for example, there's no point on like feeling so sad to make the audience so sad. Like sometimes it works better to like be laughing on stage and like put on a musical number, which is essentially what we do. And the audience is absolutely like bored and like enraging at the, at the things that are on stage. So yeah, definitely that's rage and women should be not only allowed, but empowered to express more rage. I'm all for that. And yeah, I, I have a bond to pick with everyone who says otherwise. But I think there's many other like colors and nuances to find apart from rage to explore these very deep topics. Tell me about your journey to here in terms of, because you've got many different skills, many different hats. Yeah, tell me about your journey as a theatre maker. I know also you studied at Essex University and currently work at the Lakeside Theatre. I also used to work at the Lakeside Theatre, so I'm <laughs> going to try not to ask too much about the Lakeside, everything in that area. But yes, tell me how you got to where you are. Yeah, of course. So I am originally from Catalonia, hence my accent. And I started like doing theatre and participating in theatre spaces when I was five. I basically enrolled myself, I was a five-year-old, to my very Catholic school's drama club. <laughs> and then my parents found out when they passed them the receipt. So my parents uh, only accepted me going to theatre classes if I also enrolled to English classes into an academy because they thought drama is just a phase and I would outgrow that and you know English was something very important for my future but jokes on them because now I'm making theatre in London so <laughs> that's how how I started and then I, I just kept doing theatre every year every year as a teenager as a child and when it was time for me to decide what to do with my life there was no question I had been saying since I was four that I would be an actor and a theatre maker and I don't know why everyone was surprised that I actually pursued it and I went to drama school in Barcelona when I was 17 I studied there for three years and that was just all my technique all my like the commitment and the perseverance and the rigor that comes with being a performer an artist just comes from those years I had amazing teachers it was a very challenging challenging three years but it really made me as a performer and I continued working within the arts as I was studying in, in Barcelona 
I funded different festivals. I was producing a festival called Al Cacao in my hometown, which is I'm from Girona, which is called the City of Festivals. And it's great because I was always surrounded by, like, we have a, an international theatre festival. We have something called Tamburada Alta, which is, like, this massive, again, theatre festival, but it's so expensive. And we have a problem of, like, who has access to theatre. So a group of teenagers and 20-year-olds, um, we made Al Cacao, which basically brought theatre into public spaces and to demographics that couldn't access these other big festivals that we had in town and that really like brought like infused my approach to theatre which is always community-based and very accessible. I also produced um, video dance festivals in Barcelona and Brussels called Lens Dance. So I've done a lot of producing and I always knew I wanted to have my own theatre company. I always knew I wanted to come to the to the UK and oh my god this is the craziest thing. When I was 19 I started working in Game of Thrones uh, for a summer. <laughs> I know! Um, so I was I was an extra, dude. I was around. I was picking everyone's brains. I was going to the directors, assistant directors, the people on the cameras, absolutely everything, and talking to them because they came from the UK, most of them, or from around Spain. And I remember talking to the person doing my hair because I was in um, hair and makeup for like two hours and a half like you have no idea the production that was behind that show it was insane so apparently like the hairdresser that was allocated to me her daughter went to drama school in the UK and we were chatting for these two hours that she was doing my hair and when we were on set she came to me and snuck a little note with a list of all UK drama schools I was like you have to go to England and then I get I get to like talk with actors who are in Game of Thrones and they really recommended the UK and in Spain we have a problem which is if you're a performer you're not going to make a living out of it and there's a lot of classism in the theatre industry and I'm a very privileged individual like I can recognize my privilege and being able to study the arts and I had a lot of economic support from my family but I thought it was not fair and it was not the environment where I wanted to create make art like for whom like who can access to it and I was working after drama school I was working three jobs plus my acting gigs I was still living with my parents and I was like I don't know how much I can maintain this and after talking to all these artists who came from the UK, I was like, well, this is the moment. And then Brexit got announced, and I was like, yes, this is the moment. <laughs> so that's when I applied for universities here in the UK, and I got accepted. I decided to go to the University of Essex for how close to London it was, and that drama department was like number one for a few years. Oh my God, I'm so happy I went to Essex. Uh, and I studied there for, for four years, had amazing lecturers who supported me and my craft so much. I was absolutely insane. I arrived and like at a month from arriving, I was like, I want to make a theatre play and I want to start teaching drama. And I just, I just convinced people to help me with it. And I did a play in collaboration, not collaboration with the BBC directly, but, um, Basically, I found out there was a mishandling of sexual harassment cases at university and I started investigating and like handling 
facilitating many interviews with women uh, and queer people around campus. And by pulling that thread, I uncovered so many things. And then I realized that there was uh, people from the BBC investigating the same thing at the same time. So I passed on my notes to them. Um, they had me with some stuff. And I made a theater play called Plucked. There was a huge success. And with that, I started my professional career here in the UK. And then I started teaching drama classes for university students at the Lakeside Theatre and I started working with them. I started doing a lot of performance art in galleries and now I work at the Art Exchange Gallery at the University of Essex. And yeah, just doing lots of things whilst I was studying, uh, writing, 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 producing a lot of stuff, meeting more people and finally making my own theatre company which is Mad Ho, which is my baby. I started working on it on 2020 with the University of Essex Startups team, which I'm very grateful for all the support. And we launched last September. And since then, we we premiered in the Off West End at the Pleasance, and now we're coming to the space. We won an award at the Festelon Festival of Theatre, of Spanish Theatre in here in London. So yeah, it's been a wonderful journey. My next question is, you've touched on it a little bit, but what is next? What's the next piece that you would like to make? Yeah, so I'm working on a piece that's going to be about the sexual harassment, how prevalent it is and normalised it is in drama schools in Catalonia. And I would venture in Spain, but I'm going to stick to Catalonia because that's what I knew. Like... I myself experienced something like on that topic, like we work with a director during our third year showcase and we knew that that particular director used to sleep with students every year and every year like he could pick a girl from each class. And obviously like that's that's so bizarre that like the director of the drama school knew and all, all teachers knew and no one challenged it and it was just so bad. And during the pandemic, this piece of journalism came out that another drama school in another place of the country had a similar problem and the victims decided to speak up about it. And it really triggered me so, so much. And my case was not that bad, but some of the cases, it, it was insane. So I decided that I wanted to speak up and find other people who wanted to speak up. And this is insane, but I was silenced by other people in my drama school. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to leave it. But then all the victims from my drama school spoke up and there was another article that came out and I was like, okay, oh my God. So it was a very convoluted moment and that really sparked this Me Too movement that we were speaking about. So that really informs my next piece because I just can't stay silent in front of that. Uh, and I tried to go the legal way and I spoke to the police and the police were, in this case, really amazing with me and believed me but the person how do you call it the lawyer that the government allocated me didn't believe me and asked me why i jumped into the bandwagon of coming like out with this story and i was startled and i had many preconceived notions of how victims went through through the legal system um people told me that i wouldn't have to see like the, the guy I was accusing, that was not true. 
I was told that I could do it anonymously, that's not true. My name could be out and knowing Spanish media could be everywhere. So yeah, there were many reasons why I decided to not go for it on the legal route, mainly because I was told that these things were prescribed for a year, so even if the jury found him guilty, uh, nothing would be done to him, which is why many of the other victims who had like way worse experiences than me decided not to talk. So everyone was silenced by the, the legal by the legal route, and that that frustrated me so much, and I felt so powerless. And I decided to start start writing my experiences and my my thoughts. And lately, there has been this discourse by perpetrators all around the world that they are saying that this is a witch hunt against men and I find it so funny that they are reclaiming that word specifically because witches were women accused of something that really wasn't there by men and it was yeah like witch hunts were, were basically violence perpetrated towards women so how dare they like use this word it's very mind-boggling to me so uh, I'm, I'm writing a piece it's still like very early very early on the process of <laughs> sorry someone's <laughs> I'm writing this piece about the uh, meeting of men and um, harassment in drama schools that has to do with witchcraft with witch trials and yeah you'll hear about it when it's written I'm looking forward to it very much. Your style of theatre, I mean, I think to add to your to your skills and to your description of the kind of theatre maker you are, you're really a journalist. You know, you're documenting live events, researching, delving deeper into the story, being part of the events. It's quite extraordinary what you're doing and your practice is... It's, thank you. Thank you for bringing it to us. Yeah. Thank you. I think my university university degree really informed my practice. Um, so all the research skills that I got from that, I do a lot of archival research. I also do a lot of pervading theatre. Yeah, we as a company focus in human rights issues, always seen from a feminist lens. So there's yeah, for me, it's very important to, to see like current affairs and things that are happening now and how it affects people. And I think my practice is really activism on stage, activism through art. And I always look for the, the potential of social revolution through the arts. I was having a conversation the other day with an academic who said that theatre is not politics and I couldn't disagree more. The personal is po politic and the communal is politic. So, you know, a communal experience such as theatre and performance can really inform um, activism and people's ideas and awareness about certain topics. And, like, most of my plays ended up transforming into, into protests. So we were talking about Plucked, the piece about sexual harassment mishandlings at the University of Essex that turned into something called the Tired Project, which was a series of protests at the university. And then we got, our team got to rewrite the codes of conduct regarding sexual harassment at the University of Essex. So I think theatre is deeply politic and yeah, that's that's what I do. I do art that transforms communities and transforms society. Fantastic. So many thoughts about theatre and what it can do, because we 
even when we're addressing political issues in theatre, even when we make an effort to have community outreach or bring in witnesses almost to what, whatever is we're writing about in the plays, you are actively within it and writing from a place of experience, but also, as I say, walking alongside. It's something rarely seen and it's important. Yeah, and always engaging with the community and with, like, with the community, not at, at the expense or using the community. That's one of the things that I really have it very clear on my head, I remember. So I, I, I advocate a lot for like refugee issues. My practice at the beginning really centered with activism around this. Oh my God, there's this theater maker in Barcelona called Elena Tornero, who's a massive like feminist author. Uh, and she taught me, and we used to go to, well, I, we bumped onto each other in conferences uh, about like refugees and the state of everything in Spain. And I told her that I wanted to tell the story of a person that I had met and she asked me, Marina, do they want you to tell their story? And oh my god, this really changed my approach onto theatre. I was very young, very naive and very like, just like stormblazing through my ideas. And that made me stop, pause and think. So I could never tell a story that people don't want me to tell or feeling like I'm going to make any profit from it. So yeah, it's always engaging with the community, talking to them, seeing if I can help, really. So, so yeah, I do, I do art that involves and engages communities. I could talk to you about this all day. However, as we're a little bit short on time, I will ask the, the final question, which we ask at the end of every podcast. And again, we may have touched on it a little bit before. Looking back, what was your first ever theatrical experience? Could be you secretly signing up to those drama classes, or could be something you saw or something you liked? Oh my god, this is very silly. If I went to a Catholic school, I was taught by nuns. <laughs> very hardcore. Um, and I remember them banning things like carnival, which is a big thing in Spain because it was a pagan celebration and stuff like that. So we couldn't dress up. And oh my God, I was a camp kid. I used to, we had these books full of fancy dress things and I used to steal those, put them on and run to the playground and they told me to take it off. Uh, but there was one thing that was allowed and that was something called Pastorets, which is a play about the nativity. And there were fancy dresses and all these characters and makeup and it was always the 14 year olds in the school uh, performing that and I was obsessed every Christmas I was looking for it. I always looked forward to um, engaging and performing in it. So I would say that was my first theatrical experience and actually after doing the SSI language has some so much to do with like Catholicism and Spanish culture. One of my lecturers told me that um, Catholicism is like a lever, how like the more you restrict a person, the more artistic it gets, like the more expression there is, you know what I mean? Yeah, I can tell many horror stories of, of studying in such a Catholic environment, especially like as a queer neurodivergent kid. But I think it really made me and it made my my wishes for storytelling so strong and so passionate that that's why I am here today. 
you have always clearly been a drama activist by running around dressed up. I think that's a fantastic yes. first image of you yes. as a... <laughs> It was almost like a drag show. <laughs> and I was... Um, so that class must have been when I was four. Yes. Oh, so fun. I still remember the skirt. I had a favorite skirt. Yep. Perfect image to end on. Thank you so much. So the S is Silent will be with us very shortly, 11th to the 13th of July. So only a few dates. If you can't get to the space or you'd like to watch from home, it's also live streamed on the 13th of July and will be on demand for two weeks. Thank you so much for coming in and see you very soon. Thank you so much for having me.